Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. On May 11th, that is Thursday, COVID-19 is no longer going to be a public health emergency in this country. That means a lot of things. The CDC is going to stop posting a national count of coronavirus cases. Your insurance may not cover every nasal swab you get. But it also means something else is coming to an end. A pandemic-era rule that upended immigration policy in this country. Title 42. Title 42 is a pretty jargony way to describe this rule. So I asked Arlise Hernandez, who reports on immigration for The Washington Post, to explain it a little more simply. I mean, the the term that we use usually is a, a public health order, if that's yeah. any more helpful. It's an, an, it's an expulsion, a blanket expulsion order. That sounds so much more harsh than just Title 42. <laughs> well... I don't know, <laughs> jargon or harshness. <laughs> Which, yeah, take your pick. Right, the, the effect is it's the same. For the last three years, Title 42 has given the Biden administration and the Trump administration before that the ability to deny entry to just about any migrant, even asylum seekers. Think of it like a rubber barrier around the southern border. There aren't any consequences for attempting to enter. So lots of people try, but much of the time, they get bounced out for now. Our Elise says for border control, Title 42 has been a convenient tool. Others might call it cruel. Big jump in the crowd at the border just days before Title 42 expires. Good afternoon. Welcome to The Four. I'm Heather Myers. I'm Carlo Cicchetto. For migrants, now that this rule is being lifted, many are hoping now's their chance. For weeks, there's been a steady increase in the number of crossings, building to this moment when many think they're going to make it to the U.S. for good. While there today, migrants begged us for food and water. They also asked us to charge their phones. Some have been camped out for days waiting for May 11th. That's when Title 42 expires, giving them an opportunity to claim asylum. The hope for everyone here is to be alive. I wonder if you think Title 42 ending puts pressure on the Biden administration to figure out what it really thinks about what's happening at the border. This is very much a test for the Biden administration. Because 
You know, immigration has been a thorn in the side, I think, of Democratic presidents for a while, and it's been a cudgel for Republican uh, administrations for at least 30 to 40 years now that we haven't seen major movement on immigration reform in Congress. And, you know, for the border communities who have to live with this every day, you know, the idea that thousands of people coming, not so much that they're coming, but that the United States might not know who these people are, is a very scary prospect. Today on the show, the end of Title 42 means a new normal on the southern border. Then what? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Title 42 was first introduced by the Trump administration at the start of the pandemic. It came amidst a wave of other anti-immigration policies, including the controversial Remain in Mexico. But Title 42 is different in that it relied on an old public health law dealing with the spread of disease. Trump advisor Stephen Miller resurrected this rule to essentially circumvent U.S. immigration policy. At the time, most Democrats were incensed saying Title 42 trampled on migrants' rights to seek protection. When it first was announced and came forward, uh, we used the term obscure because no one had heard of it. <laughs> Very few people knew of its existence. And it was one of these things that we had become accustomed to during the Trump administration where the architect of many of these measures, Stephen Miller, would I guess, be digging through the law books or, or looking at sort of obscure measures of law to try to find ways to, you know, set immigration to zero at the border in particular by, you know, pulling out these measures that no one had heard of, no one had really any idea how they were supposed to work. Yeah, in Title 42, this was something that was on the books since like 1944, is my understanding. Like it was just sort of sitting there waiting to be activated. That's exactly right. Yeah. And somehow, you know, Stephen Miller and the people who work with him or for him found it and figured it would be a useful tool for their agenda. When Title 42 sprang into effect, most migrants who showed up at the border were simply expelled. There were some exceptions to this blanket policy, but getting special treatment was onerous and complicated. Critics argued that this opened the door for smugglers to step in and take advantage of the situation. 
So you either have to go through this complicated process, get in touch with, you know, folks who know how this system and this exception process works, or you, you know, fuel the perverse incentive that smuggling organizations have to move people across the border uh, with no consequences. And what would happen is if if you're, say, you're someone from Guatemala and you try to cross on your own because you heard that if you surrender to Border Patrol, you can ask for asylum and go through this judicial process. Now, with Title 42, you get caught, you're thrown back into into Mexico, and you're like, what happened? Do I keep trying? And there are people who tried eight, nine, ten times. So there's there's two parts to this, right? It's, it's the fewer legal pathways to get into the United States for whatever reason an immigrant might seek to do that versus the perverse incentives and the fact that there aren't any consequences. Under Title 42, you could try as many times as you needed to until you had success. So you would see how something like that would feed into the human smuggling landscape. Yeah. During the presidential election in 2020, how did then-candidate Joe Biden talk about Title 42? Did he talk about it? Or did he talk more about comprehensive immigration reform? What I remember is sort of general sweeping comments about you know, the Trump administration policies and reversing them. My immigration policy is built around keeping families together, modernizing the immigration system by keeping families, unification and diversity as pillars of our immigration system, which it used to be. Ending Trump's cruel and humane policy at the border to rip children from their mother's arms. And it was sort of this square focus on we're going to do the opposite of what the the Trump administration is doing. We're going to create a fair, orderly, welcoming humanitarian system that would honor those claims of asylum and protection. When President Biden took office in 2021, even though he overturned some of Trump's immigration policies, Title 42 stayed. The administration didn't announce plans to end it for over a year. As soon as they sort of made moves to remove that, came the lawsuits, right? Came the countersuits from Republican attorney generals, including Ken Paxson here in Texas, as well as other state legislatures that are uh, Republican nominated. Yeah, I want to unpack this a little bit because it's complicated. In April 2022, the Biden administration did say we want to roll back Title 42, But a judge said, you can't do that. You're not doing it through the proper channels. It's not going to work. But then a few months later, the Biden administration tried to expand Title 42 to block more people from crossing the border. And it kind of gave me whiplash because you could see the administration using Title 42 as a tool, but then also recognizing it would have to be rolled back at some point. Like, I just couldn't tell how the administration felt about this policy. Well, so I think their idealism crashed with reality, right? The The last year, the waning years of, the, of President Trump's term, we had the pandemic, right? And so the numbers of crossings went down significantly, right? The world was just kind of paralyzed, didn't know what to do with this pandemic. And uh, when Biden came into office, we were just slowly sort of crawling out of that hole, right, that pandemic hole. And the world was just starting to sort of wake up and and figure out, you know, what their next move was. And so when the Biden administration looked to repeal 
uh, Title 42 then were blocked, it coincided with a huge uptick in movement across the hemisphere. That's when you started seeing thousands of people crossing the Darien, which I'm sure your your listeners have heard of, the, the jungle, the awful, awful jungle between um, the South American and, and Central American land masses. Yeah, the Darien Gap. Exactly. The Darien Gap, el Darien. But so you, you started seeing that happen. You started seeing huge numbers of people from Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua are places where we don't have diplomatic relationships with those governments that cannot easily deport those folks. So you had large numbers of people from countries that you can't easily deport them back to. And, you know, the Biden administration looked at that and and needed to make a choice. Well, how do we in the short term try to blunt these numbers and prevent sort of the, the harsh criticism that would come politically from you know, Republicans ahead of a midterm election that they needed to move in their favor. And so they thought, oh, we got this tool here. We can we can use this. That's exactly what happened. Is Title 42 ending now basically because there's no other choice? Like the health emergency is ending, so Title 42 has to end? The authority to maintain it, which was as a public health order, is gone. and And so they can't justify it legally according to the procedures to keep it in place. Yeah. Knowing that this policy is ending, how has that impacted the border itself? What does it feel like now if you're on the southern border? It depends where you live. If you live right on the river and you have a property that uh, is right on the banks of the Rio Grande, you, you're probably expecting and already seeing large numbers of people showing up on the shores, surrendering themselves to Border Patrol. If you live in a city six miles from the river, like McAllen, Texas, for example, you know, you're hearing about it, you're hearing politicians talk about it, depending on what your political persuasion, some are talking about it more than others, but you you, you don't see it in the same way as, you know, people in El Paso, which is another place where you've seen in recent days, thousands of people who've crossed the river and are now, you know, camping out in the streets uh, because the shelters are full on both sides of the border. El Paso has declared a state of emergency. Local leaders estimate nearly 2,500 people are already in the city waiting to travel to other parts of the country. Shelters are full, leading many to sleep in... And if you're on the Mexican side, what you're seeing is large numbers of people amassing, some, you know, waiting to see what will happen, others not waiting and going ahead and jumping to the river. There have been drownings already. The river is is unforgiving. I mean, I know the administration has sent 1,500 troops to the border. How are they expected to help right now? Well, so troops are, are not allowed to detain migrants. Uh, they're there for support services. So if you can imagine 2,000 miles of land border on the river. So basically they're there to, to post up to help with driving vehicles, as I understand it, to help with um, monitoring the surveillance uh, infrastructure that that is on the border. There are sensors, there are cameras everywhere. There are you know satellite balloons and drones, and so I think that's going to be more of their work. While the actual to re- you know relieve Border Patrol of those kinds of responsibilities, so that they're dealing with people directly and and for added security as well i guess because there there are some fears that you know with an increase in human smuggling come also you know folks who who are armed and dangerous after the break 
What does Title 42 ending mean for the rest of Biden's immigration policies? Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The, the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Up until this point, President Biden has essentially been able to rely on Title 42 for political cover. It's a mandate to expel migrants that he didn't push through himself. Now that this rule is ending, though, and traffic at the border is surging, people are beginning to ask, what's the president going to do about all this? In the last few months, Arlise says, we've started to get some answers. First, the administration launched a new app that allows asylum seekers to apply for relief remotely, rather than showing up at the border in person. The administration also plans to expedite asylum interviews. But it also is coupled with some stiffer consequences that will face those who decide to cross the river or cross between ports of entry. So it's like carrots and sticks. Exactly. That they're they're looking to fast track deportations back to countries of origin where they can. And then I know that one aspect of Biden's planning, and this this is probably a little more forward looking because it'll take time to set up, is getting processing centers in Latin America Basically, so that you can apply for asylum not at the border, but somewhere else. And I'm wondering what you make of that, because in some way it seems like, first of all, it'll take a while. Second of all, it's a little bit of an optics thing where you're just not getting people into the United States where they're seen, essentially. You're, you're keeping them somewhere else, and st- but still doing the same work. Is that a fair characterization? I think that's fair. Um, Essentially, these would be centers that would be run by United Nations organizations. uh, And the idea would be to screen all these applicants for eligibility based on, you know, U.S. law. I think the thinking there is that, you know, these centers right now, which they're slated for Colombia and and Guatemala, which are two, you know, pass through points for significant numbers of people. They don't want people to have to go through the journey. And I guess putting these centers in Guatemala and Colombia, they wouldn't necessarily have to go through the Darien Gap, which has been, you know, any story you hear about migrants coming from Central America, that's that is the point where people break down. That's exactly right. I mean, you're essentially I think the aim is to remove the incentive to have to make that journey and to, you know, have other people, you know, Lawless people profit from that entire, you know, human movement and instead give people this chance, this opportunity to do so, you know, safely in in theory, safely from um, a place like Colombia or Guatemala and get a fair shot. Now, you know, it's all going to depend on whether people feel like this is fair and whether it's moving 
through the process? And that's a big question mark because, I mean, in the United States, we have a huge backlog of asylum cases right now in, in, in immigration courts. That is to wonder whether, you know, this kind of schema will give people the kind of, you know, assurance and satisfaction that it's working enough to make a difference in the people who are deciding to continue those those journeys. Yeah. I mean, the Biden administration also announced it's considering implementing a temporary rule to deny asylum for people who cross the border illegally. Can you tell me more about this idea? Like, how would it impact the flow of migrants into the U.S.? I don't know how exactly it will, but essentially the idea is that if you're caught crossing the border illegally, that would that's a ding against your record. Whereas with like Title 42 currently in place, like it's nothing. They just throw you back across the river. But essentially this would be a ding on your name and record and prevent you from, in some cases, being able to reenter the United States for at least five years. That's quite a punishment. It is. It could be a deterrent, right? But the other part of that is if, you know, if you've crossed unknowingly of like that this is now that now there's a punishment now there's a change in the policy and you get slapped with this five-year ban but you're still the incentive is still in place for you to to enter the united states who are you going to go to a smuggler yeah i wonder if what you think about the political timing of title 42 ending i looked at it and i wondered if in some ways it was good for Biden. Like, there's going to be a surge of people now, but then there's time before the 2024 election season really picks up. And so that's time for some of these policies he wants to put into place to snap into effect and start working. I mean, that's definitely one way to think about it. And yes, we're far enough away, I think, from 2024 where they can try this and see what works. And and essentially, they're throwing a lot of different things at the wall to see <laughs> what sticks and to give them room to see like what works and where the the holes in the wall will sprout. The other side of that is that it's, this is also a huge opportunity for the presidential hopefuls, folks like Ron DeSantis in Florida or Greg Abbott in Texas or elsewhere, you know, to take advantage if things go really bad. Right. Like to to make this a drumbeat. You know, I was looking back at the original way Title 42 was framed when it was first implemented by the Trump administration. At the time, Stephen Miller, the, that White House advisor who, who conceptualized this idea, he talked about how Title 42 would reduce immigration, therefore protecting American jobs and keeping communities safe from criminals. And I think it's so interesting three years later to just look back at that because in the ensuing years with this rule in place, crime surged in the U.S. And then if you listen closely to how President Biden is talking about migration at the moment, he's talking about making sure American businesses have enough workers because, of course, the labor market is very tight I wonder what that tells you about how we understand immigration or not. You know, immigration very much adapts to whatever geopolitical, geoeconomic forces are at play at the moment. And I think, you know, several years ago, we were in a place where there weren't a lot of jobs and folks were anxious, you know, with the pandemic about, you know, their prospects. And then we entered, what, a labor shortage, right? <laughs> and realized that there are a lot of sectors for them to be able to move at the pace that they wanted to profitably. 
they needed workers. Um, so our policy, immigration policy, is not something that responds necessarily to humanitarian needs per se. That is not sort of the the motivating factor for for U.S. policy. But what the the national interest is, whatever the political and economic moment is for the for the country. Yeah, you know, some people, including notably some former members of President Biden's administration, have criticized his immigration policies, saying they share some element of cruelty with the Trump administration. I wonder what you'd say about that, given that now we have a fuller picture of how the administration plans to respond to migration after Title 42 ends. Do you think that criticism is fair? I think it depends what part of the policy you're talking about. If you're talking about the narrative, right, of the two administrations, they couldn't be more different, right? Whereas the Biden administration has tried to position himself as being uh, a humanitarian and welcoming to some degree. And the Trump administration very explicitly was about closing the door on folks. So I think in narratively, they, they operate very differently on immigration policy. But the question is whether the policies act different in practice. I think objectively, you could say there are more options for folks to find a way to tell their stories and come to the United States for safety than there were before. But activists in particular would tell you not enough and not enough to meet the international commitments that the United States has made. Arlise, thank you so much for your time. I'm really grateful for your reporting. Thank you for having me and allowing me to explain my complicated thoughts. <laughs> Arlise Hernandez covers immigration at The Washington Post. And that's our show. If you are a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support us is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus and learn all about it. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, Rob Gunther, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support right now from Laura Spencer, and we're led by Alicia Montgomery, with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate, and I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter, say hello, I'm at Mary's desk. All right, thanks for listening. Catch you tomorrow. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.